are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. I'm excited today to be continuing our time in worship by jumping into the word, the scriptures, right? We believe that God has given us this revelation of himself in the Bible, these words that point us to who he is and show us his heart for us and for creation. And that's what we're gonna do today, right? We're gonna jump into those words and in them, uh, we're gonna ask God to meet us here, uh, to, to connect with us and in connecting with us to shape our lives, to do something special in us. And so today we're gonna be continuing our time uh, in the word, but we're gonna be continuing our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes entitled, A Pursuit of the Wind. Uh, now, if you've been with us, you know that this one uh, has been like a heavyweight title fight. All right, let me say it like that. When you got the little guys, and some of y'all that ain't in the box are gonna be like, bro, I can, I'm, you're losing me already, right? But, but in, in, a, in a middleweight, right, lightweight boxing match, right, there's some, there some punches thrown, but, but you, don't, you know that only every once in a while they're gonna be a knockout punch. On the other hand, when you go to a heavyweight title fight, you know that them big boys, right? Them boys that are like 6'4", 250 pounds, every punch they throw is getting ready to be a knockout punch. And that's why they say, man, every heavyweight has a chance, right? But Ecclesiastes kind of been like that heavyweight title fight. It's just been like major, just like Hail Mary knockout punch after Hail Mary knockout punch. And I hope you've enjoyed that uh, because really, man, the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to do that. Uh, contrary to a boxing, you know, match kind of hitting someone, putting them in a haze, uh, Ecclesiastes is meant to shake us out of a haze, the haze of kind of what we're living in and what we give ourselves to and what we expect out of life, and rather to wake us up and say, hey, some of these things, they're not going to give you what you want. In fact, none of these things are going to give you what you want, right? You, you'd be much better served using your life this way, right? Enjoying it, but also glorifying and remembering your creator, and he bases this argument around this idea of what? Evil. All right, all right. We got one. You leave it to Mark, y'all. You, you, you always got a little fallback in Mark that you can, you can rely on. Hevel, this, this word that kind of translates like a, a cloud or a vapor, right? Something that seems tangible when you see it, but when you grasp at it, right, all of a sudden it seems to kind of like, like vanish in your hand. Now, uh, the past few weeks we've been going over chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and we're now in week four. And we're tackling a, a chunk of chapter four. But what I want to do today is I want, to, I want to invite you into a conversation about chapter four by asking you a question. If you surveyed the majority of people outside of this building right now, aka people that ain't in church on a Sunday, all right, and we'll, we'll for our purposes today assign them non-Christians, right, non-followers of Jesus for the sake of our, our survey, what would you say their response would be to the question, What's, what's worthy of giving your life to? What's worthy of giving your life to? Not a hypothetical. I want to give some feedback from you. What would you say the response would be? What's worthy of giving your life to? Say it again. Family. I think that's a high one for a lot of people. All right. Anybody else? Helping others. I think that, that's really, I would say that's one would be high. Uh, making a fortune. Fame and fortune, which involves making a fortune. But yeah, um, 
Yeah, okay, that one's good. Let's do one more, just because I, I like class participation. This side of the room has had every single answer right now, so let's go to this side of the room, right? Is this side of the room, what, what would you say the response would be, or what would a response from them be? Say it again. Friendship, relationships. Okay, that's really good. Let me say this. I don't think there's a wrong answer to that. Why? Because if you surveyed a bunch of people, you get a bunch of different answers. But here's what I would say. In a city like Austin, right, where ideas of serving others, ideas of trying to help others, as, as much as there's some holes in those ideas at times, uh, where, where even like people from the local animal shelters will be like racking up mad, you know, like donations because people are like, yeah, like you don't want to treat animals bad, right? Like everybody wants to help everybody and do good. And we want to save the planet and each other and the animals and everything involved. And it's like, I, I would say a question, I mean, an answer that we would frequently get there is the answer of justice in some way. That's why I said kind of, I was like, oh yeah, Daniel's kind of, I think in my mind, hitting on something that a lot of people would say, which is like helping others. But that is really in the frame of justice, right? Like, like helping others, making things right, seeing those that are oppressed and then, and then like really helping them and, and trying to restore them and build them back up. And here's the thing. I think that a lot of people in charge can, can really take a note from that. I think that that's actually really powerful. It's easy for us that, that have become Christians to start to think of the gospel as, as simply this idea that Jesus has come into the world, he's died for our sins, and now he's forgiven us, saved us from hell, and that's all we gotta worry about, right? While at the same time, when, when you start to settle into that narrative, you miss really, really like the, the bottom of the iceberg that actually nestles the iceberg in the water, that, that is all of what God wants to do through the gospel which a huge chunk of which is, is justice. Now, now hear me, I may say that right now, and there's another section of people in this room, maybe you were in that camp, right? And you were like, oh, it's, the gospel is just this. Uh, and I wish we would just stick with that. And then there's another group that hear, heard what I just said right now, and you're like, yeah, man, like you tell them, right? Like, yeah, that's right. Like, man, you, you've probably experienced some distressing events. You've probably experienced pain. You've probably experienced injustice. Right? You've probably experienced that type of hurt. And the thing is, a part of your experience at church is when people are neglecting those things and, and telling you to focus on Jesus and telling you to focus on him forgiving your sins without ever really showing you how his act of sacrifice on the cross speaks exactly to those things you've experienced. And he declares now, I'm here to make the world right, to bring justice. And so you're probably sitting here and you, you're probably here and being like, yeah, you tell him, you tell him. Right? Maybe there's a party that's become disenchanted with church in a way because of that. And, and, and I want to say, I'm sorry you've had that experience, right? But no matter what camp you're in here, no matter which of the two, what if I told you, right? This is a classic preacher uh, turnaround, right? What if I told you that Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, that's, that's his name, Kohelet. Some people ascribe him to be Solomon, others a sage, others some other king. But Kohelet, that's what we're going to call him. We're going to call him by his name. My mama told me to, to call someone by the name that their mother gave him, right? So, so I'm, I'm going to do that with respect for Kohelet. What if I told you that Kohelet observed justice? And when he observed justice, he arrived at a similar position that he did with many other things. In that he arrived at the conclusion that justice seemed to share characteristics with everything else that was Hevel. That justice, too, seemed to be disappointing at times. It seemed to be inconsistent at times. It seemed to be dissatisfying at times. And that at the end of the day, 
I think Kohelet would look at justice as well and be like, oh, there's some hevel in that. You can give yourself to it. All these people that we surveyed, right? Just so you know, there's some hevel in it. You're going to be missing something at the end. When you've achieved all that you wanted to achieve, you're going to be missing something. You're going to still feel the lack uh, that hevel gives you when you've achieved it. Now, here's the thing. That's not me saying everything, all justice is hevel. We got to, again, remember the context that we're talking about in Ecclesiastes, that what under the sun uh, is, is, is hevel? Everything under the sun, right? Ecclesiastes says everything under the sun is futility. Everything that we experience here, every justice that's rooted in ideas of, of, of what our world would define as justice and right and wrong, all those things are going to be moments when we pursue them and when we grasp onto them, we're going to say, man, that wasn't as satisfying as I thought. Or that didn't have the, that didn't have the end point that I thought. Or that wasn't, wasn't right, really like as, as satisfying as I thought. But again, that's everything under the sun. And today we're here not to talk about what's under the sun, although we, we touch on it inevitably, um, but rather to raise our attention to the one that is not from under the sun. To call our eyes to who? The person of Jesus. And here's the thing. I think Kohelet would, on the subject of justice, would give us a thesis statement like this, right? That without Jesus, there is no true justice. Without Jesus, there is no true justice. And this is the idea that we're going to tackle for the next few minutes. That without Jesus, there is no true justice. We're going to explain what that means a little bit because with that, you might... It's probably already confusing some of you because if you're like me, you're like, so you mean like following Jesus' commands or like trying to like, you know, be like Jesus when you do something or or trying to get everybody to go to church? You're asking all these questions, right? We're going to try to work through that. Uh, But this is what I want you to keep in mind when we talk about justice today from Ecclesiastes. Without Jesus, there is no true justice. Obviously, to do that, we're going to be working through Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And man, wobbly stands make me really insecure because I feel like my iPad or my Bible is fixing to fall out of them, so... If it falls and it takes a tumble, I just want y'all to just focus on me. Act like it didn't happen, okay? Um, We're going to read through the first three verses to get started, and then after that, we're going to really kind of tease out a few ideas that come from these three verses, and and I'll tell you why in a second. But um, So let's get started by just reading the first three verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins, again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no comfort, no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So here's what's happening here. Kohelet is looking at the landscape of injustice that he sees. And he's looking at it, and like everything else in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's testing it. You remember we talked about this in chapter 2 where Kohelet says, man, I tested my, my body with wine, but my mind still being wise to guide me, meaning my man didn't hold back. He went straight into the debaucherous world and said, hey, go ahead and give me everything you have, right? I, I, he says, I didn't hold any pleasure from myself. Why? Because he was trying to be just like a, a drunk, fun college student? No, because he was less drunk college student, more like college professor, right? Like guiding and in, wading into the world of pleasure, as he calls it, and saying like, hey, I'm trying to figure out what I can derive from this pleasure. And likewise, right, Kohelet is entering into the world of justice, taking a look at it and saying, I want to test this. 
I want to see, like, what does justice produce in the world as, as we see it under the sun, as we see it in the world, right? How, what do you gain from it? What does it satisfy? How does it benefit? And here's his conclusion. I looked at all, everything under the sun, the, the oppression done, uh, and I looked at the tears of those who were oppressed. And he said, those who were oppressed and crying, they had no one to comfort them. So he looks and he says, man, in a world that is meant to be just, I see a plethora of injustice. And for those that are oppressed and held under the hand of injustice, I see them crying and I see no one there to comfort them. And so let me, let me, get this, let me put this out there to you. In a city like Austin, all we got to do is hear that line and we're ready to go, right? We're ready to go get some justice. Because it's like, all right, man, that means that everyone else is benefiting from the little guy and the oppressed person is getting taken advantage by the oppressor person and we're going to go get the oppressor person because we're going to make this right. Justice, right? But here's the thing. Kohelet doesn't stop there. He says, and then I looked at those who were oppressing them and I saw that all the power was on their side. And then how does he finish that? And there was no one to comfort them either. So all of a sudden, Kohelet is painting this picture that is, to be honest, quite sad, where oppressed peoples are crying tears with no one to comfort them. And those that have amassed power trying to oppress others seem to also not have peace, seem to also be lacking someone to comfort them. And he looks at the whole landscape of oppression and says, man, that's that hevel that I'm talking about. That's that hevel I'm talking about. Because you think you're going to gain justice one way, you seek it, and all of a sudden you end up saying, I still don't have peace about something. I'm still missing something. And then the rest of it kind of starts to, to tease out this idea, right? Like, man, uh, because of how kind of mutated this experience of justice is, I thought, man, it's better for those uh, that have gone on than those that are living. Even better, those that haven't got here. So that's why he starts going into that very poetic thing of like, man, it'd be better if you weren't even born than getting out here and dealing with this nonsense. Because it's just injustice across the board. It's sad. Now, if I'm not teeing you up to be discouraged this Sunday already, uh, let's just keep going, all right? So um, this should already kind of land on you and be like, man, this is rough. But like I said, heavyweight title fight, right? Go hell, it's going for the dome every time. And so um, I, I want to remind you of one other thing. Ecclesiastes, is it written to non-Jesus uh, followers or to Jesus followers? What do you think? Is it written to Jesus followers or non-Jesus followers? There's a technicality to say it's in the Old Testament, so it's not written to Jesus followers at all. But let me, let me rephrase the question. <laughs> all y'all smart people were like, I'm not going to answer this because technically it's, you know, uh, you know what? Uh, don't send me an email today, okay? That's all I'm saying. Uh, what I'm getting at here is that uh, was this written to God's people or to not God's people? To God's people. To God's people. And so here's the thing. Here's why I'm trying to point this out. The whole of the Bible, very few sections, if any of the sections, are written to not God's people. Meaning the Bible is written by God to everybody to be a revelation of who he is. But the original audiences for every book of the Bible were God's people, were churches in the New Testament. They were uh, young leaders in the church who needed guidance. They were God's covenant people, Israel, to, to give them wisdom or to show them their history. Every single one of these books was written to God's people, yet Kohelet feels the need in the midst of uh, writing to God's people to say, just so you know, injustice is rampant. And here's the thing, you're gonna, you're gonna experience one of these two things. 
you're going to experience oppression or you're going to experience being the oppressor. And they were. God's people in Israel, God's people as the church. Us today, we've, we've known what it meant what it means to be oppressed, and we've known what it means to be the oppressor. And in all of it, he feels the need to highlight this, recognizing that, man, you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to start seeking justice on earth in a way that only God can give you justice from beyond earth. And that's why I want, I want you to nestle with that question real quick. Everything you see on TV, everything you see um, in, on social media, Everything that kind of flashes before you on Google News or Apple News, if you're just if you're that person, uh, I just don't like the app. I can't say uh, nothing beyond that. But everything you see that flashes before your eyes in those moments, you process it through a lens of of what is just and what is right. And Kohelet, writing to God's people, would still say, just because you're saved, don't mean you got the right view of justice when you read that article. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you have the right view of justice when you see that, that social media post. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you have the right view of justice when you hear someone tell that story. There's a lot of ways you're going to go about pursuing justice in the world. And even if you're God's people, not every one of them is going to be the right way. In fact, it's scary because there really is only one right way and a plethora of ways to pursue this thing. Here's what I, I want to spend the next few minutes doing. With that in mind, I want to just think about a few of the ways we pursue justice. Because we pursue justice in the ways we pursue them. And 200 years ago, the church pursued justice the way they pursued justice. And 600 years before that, it was them. And we can learn from those moments of history. But the thing is, we can also learn and apply, meaning we can look at the way we pursue justice and realize, like, hey, um, man, we do the same thing, but here's how we just do it in the modern world. And when I started thinking about this, four came to mind, right? The first one is through the government, like a national form of justice, right? Now, this one may seem easy. Like when we think about justice as Americans, we think to ourselves, man, we got to overthrow the government, right? Like it's from the very beginning of America. That's how we saw things, right? It was like, we feel like we're getting taxed and it's unjust. And what are we going to do? We're going to overthrow the British government. And then we're going to not get taxed as much. Are we at least going to be in control of our, of our taxation, right? What was the, what was the herald of the, of the American Revolution? Taxation without what? And they were like, we're going to represent ourselves, all right? We're going to tax ourselves. That's what we want to do, all right? So we've always kind of had this built into us. Like, if you're in here and you're an American, this idea of pursuing justice is extremely common to you. But here's the thing. Here's why this is dangerous, Here's why this is deadly, in fact, to the Christian. Because oftentimes when we pursue justice, a false justice, may I add, I want to make sure I didn't, I didn't say that rightly before. I want to list off a few ways that we pursue false justice instead of pursuing true justice. When we do this one and pursue the, the, the false justice of national or government justice, what ends up happening oftentimes is, is there's a few ways we do it, but the root of it is that we start to mistake a political agenda for God's will. That's what ends up happening, right? The pursuit of this false justice is almost universally rooted in the mistakenness of, of a political agenda for God's will. I think of two real ways this happens oftentimes in our society. The first one I'm going to start with because I think it is much more evil and deadly than the second. Uh, the first one that I could think of is what we would describe as a religious or Christian nationalism. 
right? This idea that, that the, the American country, the United States of America, is somehow connected to God's kingdom in some way so that when America is growing and doing well, God's kingdom is growing and doing well. And when America is under threat, then God's kingdom is under threat. And, and when America is, is struggling in some type of ethical way, right, then, then the kingdom is suffering in some type of ethical way. And so there's always this, this story of, hey, we want to make sure that we protect America because America is like God's country, right? It's a, it's a Christian nation. And then I sit in there, and if you're anything like me and you studied just for fun, I'm not saying I'm a scholar on it, but, but I got a few books, right? No, um, the American Revolution, and you hear someone say, we're a Christian country. It's like, man, if you only knew what like 70% of these founding fathers believed, you would be startled, and you would question whether you're going to see them in glory. Uh, because these individuals may have said, hey, ethically, I agree with the Bible, but, but there were men like Thomas Jefferson that cut out huge chunks of the Bible, most of which had to do with Jesus being God. A core facet of what it means to be a Christian. And hear me, there are parts of our, there are ideas in our founding documents that are beautiful, that are powerful, that I love. And they're the reason we get to sit up here and do this today. But at the same time, when we make this, confu we confuse these two things. What ends up happening is your, your God and your kingdom end up becoming the United States of America. And whatever your idea of the United States of America is, whenever someone critiques that idea of the United States of America, you hear a critique of kingdom and it automatically sets you off because you're trying to preserve what's beautiful and powerful. And so this, this way of justice, trying to find power and justice through, through kind of intertwining God's kingdom and the government is always deadly. Why? Because it elevates something that isn't God and isn't his kingdom to a place, of, of, a place above the ability to be scrutinized. And here's the thing, I wanna tell you this with all the love in my heart, friend, family and friends, whatever. When America passes on, because America will pass on, just like any other empire that's ever existed, the kingdom of God will still be active. And I hope that consoles your heart. The kingdom of God will still be touching lives. It'll still be changing minds. It'll still be overturning idols. It'll still be making lives new. It'll still be redeeming the world. A hundred years from now, 700 years from now, until Jesus returns and sets all things uh, right and under his feet, that ultimate one being death. Praise God for that. So there's, there's this religious kind of Christian nationalism. There's also just this idea of like political devotion, right? This idea that when we mistake like a political agenda for a party for God's will, and then we go to the voting booth and we just say, I'm going to knock out this thing and in five minutes. It's like, man, have you ever seen how many questions are on one of them voting? voting? There's a lot of questions. You got to vote for a lot of people in that bad boy. You got to vote for a ton of people. And if you go in there so confident, you're like, man, I'm just going to throw down an R on every single one of these, right? I'm going to go in there and I'm just going to vote D down the line, get out, go get lunch, and my day's going to be made. Then all of a sudden, you're doing the same thing, right? You're mistaking political agenda for uh, God's will. Because the thing is, the moment you've, you've blindly voted R and D down one side of the thing, you've automatically placed those who are on the other side in an unjust situation because you neglected to say, who's right about this? And this is exactly what the type of false justice that Kohelet's getting at, right? Man, you thought it would bring something. Turns out you just perpetuated injustice in a different way. And so there's national or government false justice, but then there's also a, a sort of tribal 
or communal false justice. Because what ends up happening is if you're on the negative side of this type of thing, right, if you were the one that was like, yo, we want this candidate, this party, this X, Y, and Z to be the one in power, and you did not get that one, all of a sudden you float back and you're like, man, I got to get to my people, right? I got to get in my people. And you've seen it. You've seen it, right? You get on any type of social media and it becomes this echo chamber of people of like, I can't believe this person won. This is going to happen to the country. It's never going to be the same. We've got to start praying, right? Automatically, it becomes a response where you just jump into your tribe and say, well, now in order to protect us from the injustice that I see coming, that I, I think is injustice because I think I have the right definition of justice, I'm going to start preparing my people so that we can amass power and we can be just, right? So that we can advance, so that we can be the ones that are able to fight off any incoming injustice. And we're going to amass power to ourselves, amass influence, and that's going to be the place that I find security and justice. But here's the thing. Again, what, what, is, what is Kohelet saying? I saw the oppressed people, and they didn't have peace. And then I saw the people that had all the power, and they still didn't have peace. The false justice of, of this one is just building this community of people around you that only feed in to your ideas of what's right and wrong. Then you try to make that group as influential and as powerful as possible. And in the instant you start doing that, you miss all the blanket of people that you've generalized, the blanket of people that you've put into a box, and you put them into an unjust situation, and now they're burdened, and you're back at the thing going, man, they don't have peace, but they don't have peace. It's dangerous because it, it sounds so good. Here's the thing. This one sounds good. As, as a Hispanic man, I got to tell you, that one's my favorite, all right? That one's my favorite. If I got a favorite, that's the favorite, right? Because if I'm being honest, right, I look at pictures from, from the border a few years ago and, and even still at times, right, of kids in these cages being separated from their parents. And I go, man, that's not right. And then they start listing off their names and they look like some of my uncles, right, but they sound like they're some of my cousins. And so all of a sudden I'm riled up and I think to myself, man, I want this to be my cause. I want this to be my cause. And so I start fighting for that. And all of a sudden, there is this, this subtle desire that moves from just wanting to see people freed and reunited with their family to wanting to see Hispanic people be on TV more. And, and see, I'm not saying all those things are bad, right? But all of a sudden, I want us to have more, more influence in the world. I want there to be more Hispanic CEOs and more of this and more of that. Again, none of that is necessarily bad. But when the heart of it starts to become, I would love to amass influence and power on my side so that we can defend ourselves against the perceived injustice, all of a sudden, you're setting yourself up for by the time you get to the end of that pursuit, you're going, they don't have peace. And they don't have peace. I want to lovingly say something to my minorities in the building. By the way, I've had a cold, so that's going to keep happening. My apologies. Um, be careful here. You know me, or at least those of you that know me, you know that I love the idea of justice. We planted this church in this community knowing that there was a high percentage of Hispanic people and a higher percentage of black people than almost any other portion of the city and thought to ourselves, this is where we want to be. So I value, right, the reality that God has made a diverse people and that those diverse, uh, that diverse people should be given dignity on every level and in every way. But here's the thing. Don't let this become, don't let this become the God that you serve because it wasn't ever meant to be that. It's a poor master. 
It's a bad mess. There's a reason why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Why? Because my burden is light. Why? Because I'm a good master. You recognize this? I'm a good master. But all these other things that weren't meant to be masters, they're poor masters. They're bad masters. Um, should I say this? Let's, let's, let's go with it. Um, before I started dating Rachel, uh, my wife, I took a substitute teacher position uh, for one day at her job. And it was for subbing at a first, in a first grade classroom. And those of you that know me know that my personality is a little bit aggressive. If you haven't been able to tell from the past 15 minutes of me talking. Um, but here's the thing. It was clear in the first 10 minutes that I had no business being in that first grade classroom. <laughs> that that is not what God created me for. That is not where I should be. So I was getting all these kids like, hey, man, pick your stuff up. You know, and they were just like, oh, my gosh. And like, <laughs> one, one girl, like, this kid was upset, and he turned around and was like, shut up, y'all are stupid. And so then, like, I look, and this little girl's crying. I'm going, hey, what's wrong, baby? And she was like, he called me stupid. And I was like, he called everybody stupid. That's not a good reason to be crying. And, like, and, and then finally, one moment, I, I turned around, and they were all yelling. I was like, everybody, be quiet all started crying, right? Like, all room started crying. And then the teacher from next door came in and was like, is everything okay in here? And I was like, no, you don't need to take the wheel, all right? Because I've lost the wheel already. This is off the rails completely. You know why? Because God ain't got no business. God made me in a way where I don't have no business in a first grade classroom. You put me in with middle schoolers, I did great. First grade, nothing at all. You put diversity in your ethnicity in a place where it's a master, where God didn't make it to be, it turns into a horrible master. Like the man who was made to love and serve in a middle school classroom that got set into a first grade environment, tribal communal feelings when they're elevated to the place of the highest place, they all of a sudden become horrible masters. Because here's the thing, you will continuously judge everyone on whether they're with you or against you and never nothing else. That's exact. If you focus on your oppression more than you focus on your redeemer, the only way you will judge people is whether they are for you or against you. And that's it. You will never see the image of God in them. You will never see the beauty of how they were made and handcrafted. You will never see the fact that Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins. Maybe the very sins that are levied against you, you will completely exchange those for the highest barometer being, are you for me or are you against me? Me and mine. Horrible justice. Horrible justice. Tribal, communal justice is a horrible justice. But that's not the last one. All right, there's a third one. All right, so the, the, the other one is church, though, because here's the thing. Some of us, we didn't grow up like church and religious justice. We didn't grow up as a minority, right? Some of us didn't grow up like that. And if you grew up as a minority, that last one, I'd have been like, man, you're reading my mail. But this one, you may be like, oh, man, like, okay, I wasn't really catching that. Because the thing is, your community, when you were growing up, probably wasn't your ethnic tradition or your ethnic background. It was probably your religious background. Right, maybe you weren't a minority, but maybe you went to a church that believed certain things and that saw things a certain way and that believed a certain, a certain thing and, and, and welcomed certain people, let's put it like that. And so all of a sudden, the other side for um, tribal or communal can be, hey, that person isn't for my people and my people need to be raised up. The thing about this one is that it takes that other that one that says it's not me and it's not for me, and it just puts it into a religious context. They welcome this type of people. We don't welcome that type of people. They are not Christians, right? All of a sudden, I, but then on the other side, it's the exact same thing, right? They don't, they don't affirm this type of, of, of identity. They don't affirm this type of ethic. We affirm this type of ethic. They've abandoned the way of Jesus, 
right? So all of a sudden, you're again setting up this dichotomy that says we have an in crowd. That in crowd is the one that needs to be elevated. It's the conservative theological view. It's the liberal theological view. It's the progressive theological view, right? It's the traditional theological view. And we say whoever's not in that, that, that theological view, they're the other and they're not the Christians. We're closer to God than they are because we have the right view here. Oh, no, we're actually closer to God than they are because we have the right view here. All the while, Jesus was like, ain't no one have any good views, right? I, I'm the one that came and made you, like, connected you and drew you back to God. And yet y'all are sitting here being like, but in the scriptures, I believe this. But in the scriptures, I believe this. And X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden, you've made, created a whole other cast of people based off of these um, otherisms, right, that we create with this one. And I want to take you to a text real quick because I think this is important to see. In Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 2, Matthew gives us a list of the disciples. And starting in verse 2, it says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Jesus, who also betrayed him. Now, I want you to go back to verse 3 real quick. Verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. That's an important. I want you to note Matthew, the tax collector. Then he finishes up verse 3, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And then at the beginning of verse 4, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who uh, was also going to betray Jesus. Here's why this is important. I'm going to get out that camera. I'll be back, y'all. Um, this name is meant to communicate something. The zealot was a certain type of political party in ancient Israel that, that actively hated the Roman government. They would plan to assassinate Roman leaders and Roman governors, believing that if they could cause chaos right, they could potentially one day overthrow the Roman government and achieve freedom. And so they gave it everything they had. Even just the act of, 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 of like killing a Roman uh, official was like a badge of honor, even if it cost them their life. Can you go back to verse three real quick? Here's what's crazy. This guy, Matthew the tax collector, was the opposite of this man. <laughs> because Matthew pretty much was devoted to the Roman government. He actually collected taxes for the Roman government. And the people in his community saw him as akin to the Romans. They were almost a one-to-one -one, correlation. Matthew might as well have been a Roman. He was wealthy like a Roman. He was cared for like a Roman. And here in this list, here in this list of people, right, that Jesus says, these are mine. And they're going to change the world. He sits the zealot who hates Rome and the tax collector who's in some ways obliged or obedient to Rome and sits them together and says, but in me, you're one. In me, you're brothers. Because the biggest difference for you, and it is a big difference, I'm not trying to minimize our differences, will still be second to the greatest thing in your life, which is me. That's why this religious uh, otherism, the, the religious false uh, justice, the national false justice, the tribal false justice, this is why they all fall short, friend. 
because they all create a division that says, you're the other and I'm the in. And, and Jesus sits there and says, I've come to become the other so that all of the others could be the in. We amass power and amass influence and we try to put our voice in the conversation and we try to fight for what's right. And if we're not careful, all we're really doing from Kohelet's view is amassing power and amassing influence so that at the end of the day, we look at one group and say, they don't have peace. And then we look at the other group and say, but it's weird because they don't have peace either. So what do we do? What do we do? What kind of justice should you pursue? When you are wronged and you are hurt, what kind of justice should you pursue on a personal level? When you see others that are wronged and that are hurt, what kind of justice should you pursue on a corporate level? What should you do? So that at the end of the day, you're not going, they're hurt and no peace, and they're hurt with no peace. It seemed like it was pointless. Under the sun. Remember this phrase, under the sun. Because I think Jesus gives us a really good, a really good example of what we should do. And what his view of justice and power and influence and authority actually looks like. You've heard this verse before, but I want you to read it and get in light of what we're, we're talking about right now. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Do not out of selfish ambition or conceit, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I want you to, tell, I want you to just, just answer me a question. This is going to be rhetorical because... I don't, I don't need your responses this time. I want, you, I want you to really stop and think, how different does that sound than everything else I've been talking about? How different does that sound than everything else I've been talking about? I'm going to ask you maybe a little bit harder question. How different does that sound than the way you respond to moments in justice in your own life? How different does that sound than the way you personally respond to moments of hurt and pain in your own life? How different is that? It's wildly different. It's wildly different than what I do. I ain't gonna lie, some guy cut me off in traffic like this week and I, I, was, I was in there doing that thing where if he could read my lips, right? Like, how different is that? Justice in my mind, when that guy cuts me off, is like, I hope he gets into a wreck. You know, you've done it too. You said that same thing. It's like, I hope he gets stopped by a cop. Why? So that he can, he can take the power that he thinks he has and it can be laid low by a greater power. Justice, I see the one in power and I'm the most powerful, so I lay down my life and become a servant. And you see, this is beautiful. 
when we read this verse, we don't even realize how beautiful it is. But when we find it in the traces of everything else we're talking about, all of a sudden we start to see its beauty. Because, because this is beautiful when you start to look at the political landscape and you see that one person go across the aisle and say, no, I, I got to vote for this, even though I'm this party, because this is what's better for people. And all of a sudden, everyone looks at that person and goes, man, that took some real courage. That person, it took some real courage to reach across the aisle and vote against your party lines so that you could do what you felt was best for everyone, right? It's what makes MLK's speeches so beautiful, right? Where he's not saying, hey, my community needs X, Y, and Z. When he's saying, I'm not fighting for the elevation of my one community, but I want every person to be seen as equal. And I would lay down my life so that everyone would be seen that way. It's the reason why in, in, in the religious sphere, right? It's why the very story of Jesus saying, I will become others so that you will be brought in is the one that makes us go, there's something special about that. There's something special about that. This type of love, right? This type of redefinition, right? Where all of a sudden what authority used to be is now marked more by humility and service. And what power used to be is now marked by servanthood. What, what influence used to be is now marked by caring. What justice used to be is now marked by not seeing one getting re uh, revenge, but rather seeing all be brought close to the Lord. It's this beautiful story of Jesus looking at the world and understanding the oppressed who are oppressed, I long to see free. But the oppressor who is oppressed by the sin of his heart, I also long to see free. And for the, the son of God who's, who's moseying around on streets of gold in the splendor of the father to say, rather than keep telling you, this is what you should do, this is what you should do, I will enter into the story of your existence. I will come from above and beyond all sons in order to step foot under the sun. And in me, the oppressed person will start to find their freedom because I take their oppression to the cross. And the oppressor will start to find the peace that their oppression is longing for in me as I take their guilt so that in me, now Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector can come sit at the table and look at each other and say, did he do it for you too? Amen. Did he do it for you too? Because I remember I was longing for something. I had an aching somewhere deep inside of me. And maybe it was caused because of that person. Or maybe I, I did this to that person because of that aching. But when I met this Jesus, and all of a sudden the things that I longed for start to be met. And also the things that I crave start to be fulfilled. And I start to say, you know what? I think I don't need this. I think I don't need that. In fact, if I lose everything and I, you give me Jesus, that will be enough. And they come to this table and go, he did it for you too, right? He did it for you too, right? Isn't it crazy? Because, bro, I would have killed you like three days ago, bro. But today I want to hug you. And, and what a powerful story. What a powerful truth. What a powerful justice. But that's what we're, we're invited to here, friends. We're invited to that. And I want to say something really, really. I want to say something to you here. This is not easy. This is not easy. This will take everything inside of you. Because it will be, in fact, what Jesus describes as taking a slap and then going, I got another cheek if you want it. Like, everything inside of you will say, man, but there's these other justices and like, they feel good, bro. They feel so good. And then Jesus will say, but, but this one satisfies. 
it's not easy. It's extremely difficult. But hear me, that's why you're not doing it alone. That's, that's why, one, you're giving God's spirit so that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Think about what I just said. Think about what the Bible, that the spirit that raised someone from the dead now lives in you. If, if, if he raised someone from the dead, he can make you be like, no, nah, I'll give you the cheek. Like, it can happen, trust me. So one, you're not alone in that, but also, man, you're surrounded by people to, to bolster that faithfulness. Man, get plugged. I mean, uh, man, I, the way Megan Congdon this past Thursday uh, described the idea of being in community where she said, being, being vulnerable, tight-knit, life-changing community, right? That type of thing where you come back and say, I want to pursue this false justice. And someone takes your eyes and points them to the beauty and love and grace of Jesus. And you come back saying, you know what? That one's better. That one's better. You got those two things, right? Like God has given you ample tools to fight for this. My question to you today is, are you going to fight for it? Are you going to fight for this? Because here's two invitations as we close up today. The first invitation is this. Right now, if you're, if you're looking at this and one of them is like, man, I go after that one all the time. Like I love creating others in this context, the national context, the uh, religious context, the ethnic context. I want to invite you, with, using a strong word, but, but a loving word, I want to invite you to repent. That means I want to invite you to turn away from this pursuit of false justice saying that's evil. And it produces nothing more than me saying, they seem to not have peace and they seem to not have peace. Turn away from it. Turn away from it. In your heart, resign yourself to the fact that you may pursue it, but pursue it awake. Let me say it like that. If you're going to pursue it, pursue it awake. Renounce it, turn away from it, and recognize the next time I do it, I know what I'm doing. I'm not confused thinking I'm going to do what's right and everything's going to be happy. I'm pursuing hevel. I'm pursuing false justice, but, but I'm going for it. If that's you, man, I respect you. But at the same time, I want to invite you to turn away and repent of it. And then the second one is like, I want you to turn to Jesus. I want you to turn to Jesus. I want you to turn to that well of love that says, wherever you've been, I've gone. but I've pursued justice in ways that I'm hearing this and I'm feeling a little guilty. It doesn't matter. I took it to the cross. But I have so much on my shoulders. I took it to the cross. I am going to be present with you. And I've promised you that all of God's promises in me will be yes and amen. I will redeem and restore. This will be your life. Like rest in me. Turn to him. Turn to him. And hear me. I'm not trying to make religious platitudes right now. I believe this. I'm not telling you, turn to Jesus and like say a prayer and like really devote yourself to him and things are going to be magically better. They're going to be hard. But I deeply believe that the God we read about is real. And that when you do that, he will meet you. It may not be the way you thought. It may not be the way that's comfortable for you. But he will meet you. And he will work it out for your good. Is it going to be the good that you defined and that you set out beforehand? No. My man is, my, our man Jesus is not like a dealer of, I don't know, insert your thing. I was going to say sneakers. Where it's like, hey, if, if I give you $300, will you give me X, Y, and Z? That's not the way he rolls. He says, give me everything. Bring the pain. 
bring the sadness, bring the guilt, bring the hardship, bring it all. I will give you more than what you give me, I promise. It may not be in the currency you think it's going to be in. You may bring your heart hoping that I give you power when I really give you compassion. You may come hoping I give you influence when I really am going to give you humility. But I promise if you come, I will work it out. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your time today, uh, your word, and, and our time today in your word. Um, wrestling with these truths that are hard, that, hey, this is a land of injustice at times that we look at and go, man, the people that are oppressed are crying and have no one to comfort them. And the people that have power and oppressing others seem to not have any peace and no one to comfort them. Hearing something like that, Lord, can take the person that's gone through hardship and, and you know it, it, it can take us through the ringer and it leave us discouraged and and sad and, and hopeless. Yet the fact that this is a mere telling of the backdrop, this is a mere painting of the background that sets the stage for the story of the Son of God to enter in and take on the oppression of the oppressed and the guilt of the oppressor, though that in you we would be made new and given life is a story that we cling to now for hope. So we love you, we thank you, and I pray that today, as we wrestle with these things, we would ask ourselves honest questions about the way our heart sees justice, the way our heart sees making things right. And, and while it won't be right away, that we would give ourselves to you in a way that allows you to form and shape us to look more like you, so that the world would taste of what true justice is, and they would not, not would abandon the ways of false justice and, and run to the one who gives life and true justice. We love you. Thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.